Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. In the midst of our multiple crises of the pandemic, of an economic depression, of uh, racial unrest, of questioning more and more the future of capitalism, it seems like there's one idea which people keep on bringing up, the notion of unconditional basic income, otherwise known as UBI. Uh, Andrew Yang, the Democratic candidate for president, has popularized it. And my guest today, Scott Santons, who lives in New Orleans, is a full-time advocate of UBI and is someone who has done as much as anyone, uh, even Yang, to popularize UBI. Scott, is this the moment when UBI becomes a reality in June 2020? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about uh, this this moment as far as actually a- achieving it, but there certainly is a moment happening as far as it gaining a lot more support. And there is certainly the potential for an emergency-based income to be implemented uh, either in the U.S., but I, I think definitely somewhere in the world and I'm really looking forward to seeing which country will be that country to introduce some kind of temporary, at least, uh, unconditional basic income. I know uh, many countries have been flirting with the idea from Finland to Switzerland, or even the United States. But before we get into those concrete experiments, um, what exactly, at least in your mind, is UBI? What does it mean? Because I think it means different things to different people. Sure. I would define UBI as being a country investing in its people with an amount of money that is unconditional, universal, regularly provided, and to individuals. Those are the four main aspects of what makes for UBI. And just to describe that a little bit more, by unconditional, I mean that you keep it whether you work or don't work in the labor market. It's universal, as in it goes to the poor and the rich alike. And it's individual, as in it goes to each and every individual instead of being targeted at, say, households. And it's regularly provided. So this is something that people would get for the rest of their lives, uh, monthly, weekly, biweekly, that kind of thing. Um, but it needs to be something that you will always know will be there uh, the next time it's distributed. And yeah, that's uh, that's what makes for a UBI. And do children get it? Children getting it is one of those, uh, depending on the definition that people want to use as to like how we define the uh, universality of the people. So I believe that it should go to kids. Uh, but also, if you're in a country and they already have, say, a child allowance, 
which a lot of countries actually do have, then you could just do it for adults. Um, and same thing with like, if, if a country is already doing it for those over 65 with say uh, universal kind of senior pensions, then you could do it say between 18 to 65 to make sure that you're covering everybody. But yeah, I do think that the children is an important aspect. Although usually uh, tra traditionally speaking, the children do get a lower amount compared to uh, adults. And is there a minimum amount in order to kind of qualify as UBI? I mean, I'm assuming that if it was 100 or $200, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, as far as the, the definition goes, uh, the amount is not part of the definition. So technically speaking, you know, it could be $100 per month, $50 per month. Uh, you could call that a UBI still. Uh, but usually when we're talking about introducing some kind of UBI, uh, especially at the national level, we are talking about usually something closer uh, to the poverty line. And the poverty line is what, about $1,500 a month? In the U.S., the poverty line is um, a little over $12,000 right now per single adult. And then uh, per additional household member, it's around $4,000, a little over that. So it's say $12,000 for one person, then $16,000 for two people, $20,000 for three, that kind of thing. So it's also why when I talk about uh, the kind of optimal design for a UBI in the US, uh, it's usually say around $12,000 per adult and $4,000 uh, per kid as a kind of eliminating poverty, lifting people up to the poverty line kind of amount. So it's the regular, uh, a, a monthly version of the stimulus check that many people got in the U.S. of $1,200, although, of course, that was dependent on income. What you're saying is it doesn't matter how much you earn, you'd still get 1200 or 1500 a month from the government. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's even um, closer to what I'm talking about, too, because, again, the stimulus not only did $1,200 uh, per adult, uh, but it was also $500 per kid. So that was did, did, did contain the child component as well. But yeah, there was a clawback uh, at the top. So in the what we did is around, it was $75,000 that started to claw back at a 5% rate so that er, single adults earning over $98,000 uh, didn't receive that stimulus payment. But with the UBI, they would have. So there are two obvious critiques of this, Scott, which I'm sure you hear all the time. I mean, more than two, but the two that come to my mind. is The first is, is why would rich people get this? Albert Wenger, one of the partners, my friend at Union Square Ventures, is a, is a proponent of UBI. Uh, but he's a, he's a very rich man. Why would Albert Wenger or Andrew Yang or Fred Wilson at, at Union Square Ventures, why would they get UBI? There's a there's a few important reasons here as far as the full universality is concerned. Uh, so to cover those, see, first of all, you don't want to draw lines where possible. Um, when you have when you draw a line, and let's say with the stimulus payment, we drew that at ninety nine ninety eight thousand dollars that those earning more didn't get anything. That excludes people that actually do need stuff. 
um, you know, the the people who you know potentially lost their jobs. They earned more than that last year. The tax records looked at that and they determined them as not being deserving. So then they didn't get it. But in fact, they could be receiving zero dollars right now and being immense need. Uh, but because of that line being drawn, then they missed it. So this kind of need to eliminate um, exclusionary errors is something that universality uh, covers. And also there's a there's an element of programs for the poor are pro programs so that if you do make sure everyone gets something, then that program is actually much stronger in the long term. Uh, I, I think a good example of that is the Alaska Dividend, which has been operating fully universally since 1982. And there... No matter how much money you make, you still get that dividend. And I think because of that, uh, it's something that has only grown in popularity over the years to the point where when they first started doing it, when polled, Alaskans would prefer to lose the dividend in order to continue not paying state taxes. And now most recently, they would actually prefer to start paying state taxes than to lose the dividend. And I think that if they had gone about it in a way where, say, they mean tested the dividend such that only those earning less than six figures or however much uh, receive the dividend and the rest couldn't, I don't think that would have been in as popular a program. And I think we can look at programs like public education uh, as well as an example of this. Like, do we say that if you earn over $100,000, then you pay taxes for public schools, but you are not allowed to send your kids to public schools. Or if you do, you have to pay for it. Like we don't do that. It's fully universal. And then when people talk about universal healthcare, they don't say, oh, healthcare is a human right, except for those earning over $100,000 per year. We say, no, it's it's universal. And I think that's really important for the the strength of the program to build support for it. And yeah, to make sure that uh, that nobody is is left out. A second critique, which is an even more familiar one, I'm sure, and probably annoys you, but we have to deal with this critique, is how the hell is the government going to be able to afford to send all its citizens a check for $1,200 or $1,500 a month? There is, of course, a great debate brewing in the United States about deficit spending, Economists like Stephanie Kelton now argue that deficits aren't necessarily bad for the government in economic terms. Um, but how would you respond to this very familiar critique about the actual affordability? Where's the money going to come from to pay these, this UBI for everybody? Yeah, so this actually ties right in to the um, previous question too, because there's kind of a misunderstanding, I think, uh, widely as far as the fact that if everybody gets it, then where does it come from? So people think um, they can kind of assume that because everyone gets it, then we're actually creating new money in order to pay for it. And so they think that that's uh, you know something that's just ridiculous in order to you know pay for this as far as like Stephanie Kelton is talking about. But usually we're actually talking about a tax funded basic income. And such that you're circulating existing money from the top to the bottom and middle. So sure, let's say Bill Gates would be receiving uh, $12,000 per year and say in UBI, 
but he would also be paying say a million dollars or five million dollars or something uh, every year to receive that so there's a lot of of um, tax money you know revenue out there that we're actually actually we're we're cutting taxes at, at the top a, a lot we have 1.5 trillion dollars of tax expenditures that we're spending every year and 17% of those tax expenditures go to the top 1%. So say right now, we're helping the Bill Gates of the world um, afford a mortgage for a mansion by subsidizing the, uh, the interest, the, the, uh, the home mortgage interest on that mansion. And so they're receiving, say, $30,000 per year on average uh, for this. And we don't consider that as being any kind of, of like check because we're actually just cutting their taxes to help them pay for it. But if we see that as actually the equivalence of being a check, then we actually just need to essentially convert all of these tax expenditures to uh, just a check. And the same thing goes throughout the tax code. So you're looking at a bunch of tax deductions and subsidies and, and everything that exists and then we also look at the uh, the welfare programs that we have, that are you know SNAP, TANF, um, WIC, you know all these things that um, that we could essentially do better with actually converting it to an unconditional cash amount. So if we looked at what we're already doing and just made it a, a this this unconditional cash then we wouldn't have to raise any other revenue at all to actually make that possible. And then if we wanted to raise that amount to, uh, you know, the amount of UBI to something like a poverty level, then there's a, a lot of options as to how we could go about that. And, uh, you know, Andrew Yang ran on a 10% value-added tax as being something that could generate a lot of revenue for that. And that could essentially be seen as like a, uh, 10% tax on, you know, goods and services. And that's actually pretty affordable, especially when you're uh, returning the entire amount of revenue to everybody as a rebate. And um, so in that case, let's say you're assuming a 10% uh, VAT is entirely passed on to consumers and everyone's receiving $1,000 per month then anyone who's spending over $120,000 per year would actually be paying more in VAT than they get in UBI. And everyone below that, whoever's spending less than $120,000 per year would receive more in UBI than they would pay in VAT. And you would just be, it's just a mechanism that you can circulate money uh, that's currently being stuck at the top. And the other thing I like to say too, as far as the cost question goes, is that it assumes that not having UBI doesn't have a cost, but it does. Poverty is extremely expensive. Child poverty loan actually costs over $1 trillion per year. The cost of crime exceeds $1 trillion per year. These things are incredibly expensive. And so if we actually eliminated poverty, we could actually save a great deal of money that we're spending instead on crime, on poor health, and on lower productivity, and all kinds of things. So when you look at it that way, the question is, how can we afford not to have basic income? Scott, 
where are we then in, in June 2020 in terms of different countries experiments who's going to get there first that's really it's the it's the thousand dollar a month question isn't it who will be first um you know finland uh, a lot of people don't know this because there's a lot of misinformation out there about the finland experiment like even to this day you can ask people about finland and basic income and they'll say oh that failed years ago and that's not the case at all um, you know, years ago when they, uh, they were still running it, they decided to not continue the experiment beyond the already two years that were planned. And then after uh, it ended, it took uh, an additional two years to actually get in all the data uh, because there was a, a delay as far as like having to wait for, you know, the employment data and stuff to be processed and come in and everything. So, the results of the Finland experiment just came out like last month, and it was a, it was undeniably a success. It was it led to uh, more days of work for those who received it, um, and it led to a, a bunch of other positive outcomes as far as health, mental health, well being, trust, confidence, all kinds of measures. And so, if we're wondering if Finland's going to go forward. It's a good question, um, but at least they have the data now and to consider uh, what they're going to do next with. But when it comes to, let's say, Spain, so Spain's getting a lot of attention recently, too, because they just introduced um, a minimum income guarantee. And the press around the world, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see that apparently basic income has reached the point where it's clickbait. So there's a lot of headlines out there talking about how Spain has, has introduced basic income, um, but it isn't UBI. They, they, it's, it's definitely something that will reduce poverty, but what they're doing is um, targeting about 5% of the population um, with, a, with an amount of money that can you know, lift them um, uh, up towards the poverty line. And so, yeah, that's a, it's a good start as far as guaranteeing these people um, from from living in in poverty, but it is not a UBI, and but it it, it could be the start. So maybe Spain decides that well, they're covering five percent. Let's just move it up to ten percent and fifteen percent, and maybe they keep seeing positive uh, results. So then they decide, well, let's just go ahead and and ramp this up to to actual basic income. You know, it's possible. Scott, is UBI on Joe Biden's radar? I know Kelton is um, is an advisor, and Yang uh, seems to be quite close to him. Yeah, you know it's 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 really interesting about about Biden. I would say that it's on his radar, and that he's heard about it. Um, you know, he's discussed it with with Andrew, um, but at the same time, he's he's purposely you know not talking about it. And uh, you know, there's even. There's a petition out there right now with 366,000 signatures uh, urging Biden to actually endorse emergency universal basic income and to you know get him pushing for it, and he hasn't responded you know to that at all. And uh, I keep urging him even personally. You know, I'm constantly kind of replying to his tweets and and everything, kind of trying to to lift this up. Uh, but so far, you know, nothing. It'll be interesting to see if that continues or not. 
And finally, Scott, uh, this is really a, a very intriguing idea. And it seems like in some countries, as you suggested in the world, the time is, is close to coming when UBI becomes a reality. But for people who want some further reading, a book about UBI, what, what would you suggest? I think a good introduction is actually just picking up Andrew Yang's War on Normal People uh, that gets into basic income and also um, you know, automation and um, uh, a lot more understanding about the problems um, with so many people being left behind in the U.S. today and why UBI is actually so important even right now. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.